MSW Media. The House Judiciary Committee unveiled articles of impeachment, and the Inspector General released a major report on the Russia investigation. What does this all mean? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And today I am joined by my friend Patty Vasquez. Uh, who, I, I feel like I, I, I just I cheated you out of time. I, I, you've been so kind to keep inviting me. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. And then I don't show up. Yeah, exactly. She's, <laughs> she's, she's a candidate for, for public office and the host of the Patty Vasquez show. Uh, before I get to a whole, you're going to hear a lot from Patty in a moment. Let me just say that this episode's brought to you by our patrons with special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Frohmeyer, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, and an anonymous patron. Ooh. Yeah, anonymous indeed. You can become a patron too on our website, ontopicpodcast.com, all one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. What is anonymous hiding from? Why, I, why can't they publicly be a patron? <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, but but this, thank you, nonetheless. There you go. And we thank can, you to everybody, but especially to those, those you, folks. Yeah, exactly. Especially to those folks. Well, let's talk. Patty, what, what is the campaign trail like? What's it like running for office? One of the reasons I love coming in here is it's great to talk about these big national headlines <laughs> because local politics is, I mean, obviously a lot of people start here. And, you know, but it's also very intimate. I live in, in a neighborhood of Chicago. It's the far northwest side of the city. And, you know, I've lived there my entire life. And it's been it's been kind of a crazy ride. It's it's wonderful because I, I, I've I got the support of a community, the 41st Ward that I grew up in. And it's Norwood Park. And it's great where, you know, I, I played Little League and I went to day camp. And these folks are, are coming out to my events. And it's been really lovely. And I know that you want to talk a little bit about the story that came out. Yeah, there's a big just there's a big story that came out. Uh, uh, about Patty. Uh, what was it? Well, you were in the news. Why yes. don't you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I, I've been performing under the name Patty Vasquez for 25 years. And, you know, then when we formed this committee, you legally have to use the name that's on your voter registration. My name, for the first time in public, I had to start using it a few months ago, Patricia Dora Bonin is the name that is on my birth certificate, on my driver's license, and on my voter registration. But Professionally, I am Patty Vasquez. If you Google Patty Bonin, well, now you might find her. But uh, mostly there's a woman in Houston, Texas, who has a great recipe. But I uh, decided this week, in order to get ahead of, uh, of some pretty nasty whisper campaigns and uh, questions that were being directed at me and threads on Facebook accusing me of trying to pander to white voters by using Bonin or to pander to Latino vo- voters by using Vasquez, because I'm not famous. I, I'm a public person, but nobody really famous knows who I am. To, you're famous to me, Patty. Aww. And probably to our listeners. Listeners, but sure. Thank you. But I decided to, to change my name in 1994 because that was the same summer that John Wayne Gacy was being executed and my brother was one of his victims. And I didn't want to spend my career being associated with that. And for everyone who has reached out and has been so generous with their kindness and, and support and really a lot of love, I will say this. Uh, while my family's tragedy is very public, that's what makes it unique. It's very public in mm-hmm. nature. And so many people understand or have heard some of the gruesome details. 
the thing is that we are all touched in some way in our lives by pain and by trauma, by struggle, mm-hmm. by tragedy. And I would rather than uh, rather than empowering the past, I would rather use the strengths that I have uh, I've really developed uh, as a result of my life's experiences to empower the future. And that's really, you know, we wanted to address it. If there are any questions, people can go to the article at chicagomag.com. Bob Chirito did an, it, just a, a really spectacular job. I could not have asked for somebody better. And Jonas Bezito, there's a, a podcast on WCPT.com as well. So thank you for, for asking, and you've always been so kind. You've, you've kind of walked me through this a little bit too. So thank you to everybody. Yeah, well, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, it's unbelievable you had to go through that. Um, and I will say, I hear a little bit uh, when I speak to you about what you go through on a regular basis. You know, what are you doing? I mean, I'm sure our listeners are wondering, what are you doing uh, all the time as a candidate for sure. office? Well, and you know, a lot of it uh, comes down to dollars and doors is what I, I tell people. <laughs> what are, you know, what are you going to do to win? Uh, I'm the outsider. As we say in Chicago, I'm no one, no one sent. Mm-hmm. And that means I'm beholding to nobody. I'm not part of the machine. And it also means that I don't have access to a lot of the resources that my opponent does. Uh, I'm not the incumbent. I wasn't appointed. Um, but I am in this because my heart is in my community and I want to help people. So that means that I, I have to call and ask every single person I've ever known uh, if they would consider contributing to my campaign. And I go anywhere, for, you know, every mm-hmm. single, you know this, every single dollar matters. And on the doors, look, I'm a performer. I, I love talking to people. I've been an interviewer for years. So every single door, I introduce myself. Hi, my name is Patty Vasquez. I'm running to be your state rep. I'm here to introduce myself and to find out what's important to you. What keeps you awake at night? And uh, it's like a different show every 30 seconds, Renato. Well, if you ever, for our for our next podcast, if Patty isn't here and you're wondering where she is. I'm she's on pro- the doors. She's probably wearing a winter coat. and, uh, and Hard, hard pants. Do you know about these things? They're, they're pretty... Uh, they're very, they're, they're polar warm. fleece lined pants. They're fantastic. And wool socks, several pairs. All I want for Christmas are uh, socks, and uh, all I want is lotion and socks. <laughs> as, a fe- uh, as a former federal prosecutor, I'll tell you, Carhartt uh, is a favorite brand of certain bank robbers uh, oh, that no! I knew. Yeah, so I've, I've dealt with, I've used as evidence. I had my no. Carhartt merchandise. It's very, when in Chicago, it's cold uh, a yes. lot of times. So if you're going to rob a bank you know, and you're going to be running from the cops, you need to have your warm clothing. Robbers and, and candidates for office. Uh, apparently, yes, apparently. I don't know about that. I'm, do they wear ch- bibs or do they just wear the pants? The overalls? Just, the, the, there's also Carhartt gloves and hats. So, well, um, in, in any event, um, w- let's, let's get to the real criminals. Let's get to. Oh my God! <laughs> Indeed, uh, let's get to the real, uh, the real stuff here. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a couple things because there's such big news. Obviously, the president of the United States is facing articles of impeachment. That's pretty big news. A day before that, of course, uh, the OIG report came out. And here to talk to us about it, we've got a great guest, Asha Ringapa. Uh, all of you know her if you've been listening to this podcast. She's a former FBI counterintelligence agent. Uh, she's a CNN national security and legal analyst. Uh, she's a professor at Yale University. She was my uh, uh, classmate at Yale Law School and uh, and a friend. So let's bring in Asha now. Welcome back to the podcast, Asha. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. So we have so much to discuss. Uh, you know, since... I've been back. I you know didn't both of us took cruises. I think in the last uh, in the last month. Um, now that we're back, there's a ma- like massive news one day after another. The president of the United States uh, is now facing articles of impeachment uh, in the Judiciary Committee. 
And at the exact, you know, almost exact same time, one day before the, you know, DOJ Inspector General releases a bombshell report, uh, 400 plus pages long, containing all sorts of revelations, not only about the origins of the of the Russia investigation, but um, you know, the conduct of um, the FBI regarding the uh, FISA. Um, warrants and applications and, and a, a whole lot more. Uh, let's. I think we should just maybe. If I'd love to ask you first um, about the articles of impeachment because that's truly a historic moment. I'm curious what your reaction is to the the charges that are brought in the articles by the uh, House Judiciary Committee. Well, those charges are expected, right? I mean, we knew that. If you know, we knew that abuse of power and probably obstruction of justice were going to be, or obstruction of Congress, were going to be the grounds. I think the question was whether they were going to add things like bribery or obstruction of justice. I have to admit, and I mean, I understand we can talk about this that there were political and strategic reasons to limit it to those two, um, and I think that there are some strong reasons for that. Um, but I was personally a little bit disappointed Interesting. that they didn't at least include the obstruction of justice stuff. I know that many people, I think most of our listeners are going to agree with you. So why don't you lay out that point of view? I have a different point of view, so this will be good because we have different perspectives. Um, so what, what's your view, what's your view um, on that? Why were you disappointed? Well, I feel like so there's a number of reasons. Um, first is, the, although legally speaking this isn't true, politically speaking you kind of get one bite at the apple for a real articles of impeachment. Um, and I think that this was the chance to lay out all of the conduct for which there is actual proof, and obstruction of justice was one of those things. I mean, Mueller laid out the evidence and basically said that it was the ball was in Congress's court. And to include that would have memorialized it in a document that I think will carry more weight historically about the Trump presidency than the Mueller report. Um, you know, which will be like a relic that law students dig up and read, um, as opposed to, you know, we know the articles of impeachment that, you know, were drafted against Nixon, and we know what they were against Clinton. The The second reason is that I get that there wasn't unanimity among the Democrats about that, but I don't see why that is a problem. I mean, Clinton also, there were, I think there were four and two were voted down. Correct. And so, okay, worst case scenario, they include them and they get voted down. But again, I think the memorialization aspect is important, and in some ways, it might have strengthened the argument that this wasn't political. That this isn't a politically motivated impeachment. I mean, if there were a few articles that were voted down, then it adds to the sense that this is something that is being very taken very seriously um, by the people who are even on board with it. Mm-hmm. And then the last reason is that, especially with the obstruction of justice, and I feel more strongly about that than, say, the bribery, yeah. um, is that it is a part, it, it is related to 
the fact pattern of Ukraine. You know, in the sense that the goal of what, so there were two threads for Ukraine. There's the asking for the investigation of the Bidens, but there was also asking for, um, you know, an investigation into Ukraine's role into 2016 interference, which is essentially trying to undermine the findings of the Mueller report, um, which, you know, during Mueller's investigation, he was trying to thwart it so that it would not uncover that evidence. Now, having uncovered that evidence, he's trying to discredit it. So, you know, and I think that the articles actually allude to this, you know, in, in a few lines. Um, and so I think, you know, it wouldn't have been just some, like, random non sequitur, um, it, it would have been related, and especially given that it's not like it would have re- – I, I don't think it would have required additional hearings and all of that because the evidence was essentially laid out as far as – enough to bring a, 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 a charge or article or indictment or however you want to – you know, to meet that standard. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One thing I'm just going to say for listeners before I go any further is – this is something in which reasonable minds can differ. This is more of a uh, strategic consideration sort of thing than, than something where there's a right or wrong answer. Um, I will say, you know, just to bolster your point before I give a different view, is that, you know, an- another point, I guess, to be made is, you know, Mueller's name was even mentioned on the call that Trump had with Zelensky. It was the day after his testimony. You know, the the fact that yeah. Trump didn't, you know, take a, any lessons from that is something that I'm sure Democrats are going to want to stress. So, you know, regarding the Mueller piece, we'll put, let's put bribery to the side for the second, regarding the Mueller obstruction of justice charges. I guess one thing I would just say is, from my perspective, the selection of charges by a prosecutor um, is something that, you know, prosecutors do, or in this case, the um, ho- the House Judiciary is doing for all sorts of considerations, and in the mere fact that something's not included doesn't mean that it's not wrongful or that it won't, you know, in criminal law context, doesn't mean it's not going to get used uh, its sentencing um, to increase a penalty. Or in this context, it's not like it doesn't matter. But the question is sort of, you know, where do you want to proceed? What charges do you want to um um, you know, do you want to do you want to be telling the jury about or in this case, tell the voters, tell the Senate about. And I guess my concern with the Mueller obstruction piece is this. You know, if I am telling a jury um, about the two charges that are already um, that are in the articles of impeachment that the House uh, is come up with, I would say, OK, Trump, you know, the, the, the Trump's charged with two things, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. You know, he's charged with abuse of power because he abused the power of his office to push uh, to use our tax dollars and hold them up to push a foreign country or an ally, the Ukraine, to investigate his political opponent. And then he's also charged with obstruction of Congress because he tried to obstruct our investigation of that abuse of power. Period. That's the entire sentence. That's the entire description. If I'm trying to explain all the Mueller stuff, well, there's like all these multiple instances of obstruction of justice. And you've got to talk about him trying to fire Mueller and trying to get uh, McGahn to create a false document and telling Lewandowski to have uh, um, uh, Attorney General Sessions do, you know, do, you know, try to limit the investigation and so on and so forth. And to me, telling that whole story is complicated. And it is so kind of, it, it, to me, that story is disconnected from the main story. 
that I think just purely as a narrative, it doesn't work well. And so if I was going to do a trial, which is my expertise, I'm not a, a, a expert at the United States Senate or what convinces Republicans of anything, um, uh, I would want to have the simple story because I think that that's the way that I, I think it would be better told. But I think it's something in which reasonable minds can differ. Um, and I also understand that people are like, well, he shouldn't get away with something or not have it included. I, I appreciate that sentiment. as well. I understand how people feel about that. No, and I, I appreciate your view as well. I think that that is a fair assessment that, you know, in many ways, you want the articles of impeachment to be very basic and distilled in terms of the the conduct that they're accusing. Um, and I do agree that that would make it very long. And I mean, another thing, and, and I said that there were other strong reasons for not including it, is, you know, both the abuse of power piece and uh, the obstruction of Congress really relate directly to an undermining of Congress's role in our constitutional republic. Mm -hmm. You know, the abuse of power was him undermining Congress's power of the purse, where they appropriated these funds. And it didn't come up, so maybe there is more gray area here, but it seems to me that Trump didn't really have the discretion to withhold it for the reasons that he did that the conditions were met for the aid to be released and for him to do it for any other reason besides i think something very limited like budgetary constraints or something like that would have required him to report to congress and you know mm -hmm. take a bunch of additional steps and of course obstructing congress is like clearly undermining their role and you know one basis for impeachment, not necessarily an explicit charge, but if the conduct undermines our, our structure of government. And in, in that sense, I think both of these things relate directly to that as well. Yeah. I, and I think that matters to certain, you know, uh, Justin Amash has talked about these issues. I think that that does matter to some folks in Congress, um, in the House in particular. So, uh, you know, it, it's... I do think it's something that there's going to be a debate. There will probably be a debate for some time because it's certainly looking like the Senate's going to acquit, at least at this point. I mean, I'm not an expert on it, but based on what everything we've seen, it sure looks that way. And I think there will be people who are going to debate. You know, you mentioned, Asha, that you really only get one crack at it. Uh, you know, Congressman Mike Quigley was on our podcast this last month and or so and said the same thing, you know, and he wouldn't know better. Just he said, politically, you can only do this once. And so I think that there um, you know, one thing you have to wonder is if Trump is acquitted, you know, what impact does that have? I mean, I will say electorally, it certainly appeared to me as a non-political expert to have an impact on Bill Clinton in two th uh, and or excuse me, on Al Gore in 2000, the carryover from the Clinton impeachment. It certainly seemed to have an impact on, on Gerald Ford, from what I can tell from history. But, um, you know, I don't know what impact it'll have uh, for the President Trump. Yeah, it's hard to say, especially since you know, the, I mean, I think the, probably the closer analogy is Nixon in terms of the kind of behavior that is an issue. And we're in a very different time where it appears that Republicans are willing to 
tolerate and even condone the behavior um, in a way that Republicans in 1974 were not. Yeah, and I think that that's largely due to the um, you know sort of propaganda, um, uh, n- you know, news uh, separate news and uh, communications bubble that you know Trump's allies uh, make use of and and uh, and uh, amplify. So you know, what, not just you know places like Fox News, but the Daily Caller and you know all these right wing organizations and and spokespeople who are constantly promoting false narratives. I mean, really, there's very little about the the argument that Trump's making that is factual. In fact, there's only recently has he even tried to argue or he has allies tried to argue anything on the merits. And that's been this word us where he says, you know, do us a favor, not me a favor. That's the only thing I've seen where he's trying to make any kind of argument on the facts. Usually it's just a bunch of distraction game stuff. Mhm. Yeah, I agree with that. And even even the us thing is pretty weak. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty silly, right? Uh I mean, who's us? Yeah. I mean, is it his campaign? I don't know, but certainly um, you know, the United States of America um, you know, isn't benefiting from, you know, an announcement about Joe Biden. Uh, that's, you know, him himself getting that benefit. So what about bribery? Well, let's talk about bribery. Well, what, what, uh, you can I mean, I, you know, I will just say for myself, here, here's the thing. I mean, I'll, I'll just succinctly say my position on it, which is um, I, you know, the, 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 it is true that the United States Constitution lists bribery as one of the impeachable offenses it explicitly listed. It's also true that what the framers of the Constitution had in mind when it comes to bribery is different than what is in the federal criminal code. But the fact of the matter is that if this was an, a bribery case in federal court or in using modern bribery law, Trump would have all sorts of defenses, and it's not clear to me that you would be able to make a bribery case here. And, and so that's one concern I have, and I think that this would open an analogy. You'd hear of his supporters using all of these legalistic arguments that would sound good and giving him defenses he doesn't otherwise have. And second of all, it also, what Trump did doesn't fit the common understanding of what people think of as bribery. And what I mean by that is what, bribery is whether it's the app scam scandal uh, that old, uh, that uh, uh, some of our older listeners will know or more recent stuff here. Like in Chicago, we have aldermen who get cash under the table. Yeah. What bribery is is to people is you get you know an envelope full of cash and in exchange for that you, you vote some way or you do something with your governmental office. And it's very hard, you know, if I was the lawyer for the Trump defense, which thankfully I am not, um, uh, my argument would essentially be, you know, where's the bribe? What's the bribe here? Who gets the money? And it's very convoluted because essentially what they're saying is the argument is, is that Trump asking for an announcement is a solicitation of a bribe and the announcement is a bribe. And I appreciate that we can, uh, law professors can do some gymnastics and say that, and there, there are some, there's some truth to that, but a jury would, would find that very bizarre. And if a defense attorney is like, this isn't actually what we all know what bribery is and this isn't a bribe. I think that's going to win a lot of times in an actual courtroom. And so maybe that 
I, I don't know what what voters are going to think, but you know, the, you know, jurors are voters, and I think of it kind of the same way. Yeah, I'm I'm more torn on the bribery issue. On the one hand, because it is precisely mentioned in the Constitution, I think it would have more popular resonance in terms of like, oh, well, the Constitution actually says that. Um, but as you said, you know, there's there's this debate on whether you use a statutory definition or the idea that the framers had in mind, and then you get into kind of whatever, constitutional history and originalism and all this kind of stuff, which could get bogged down in the weeds. So, um, I mean, I'm torn. Basically, the facts that are alleged in the abuse of power article are bri- is bribery. <laughs> I mean, in the sense of, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're saying that he was, you know, trying to use his personal authority you know, to get to offer things, which is either the aid or and the uh, meeting in the White House for something that would benefit him for a thing of value. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I they have basically accused him of that without saying so. Yeah, I think that's right. This is all a wording question to me. I mean, that's why I view it so distinct from the Mueller stuff. In other words, you know, having a debate about whether the obstruction of justice stuff should be included, that's just a debate of should this additional conduct be put in there? And to me, that's just purely a narrative thing. Do you, you know, there's no question in my mind that there's enough evidence um, to prove the obstruction of justice stuff, although I will note that the actual witnesses aren't, you know, aren't, you know, haven't really come in. I mean, Lewandowski came in, but he's pretty hostile. Uh, he was not, he's not going to be somebody that the House uh, Democrats are going to want to call as a witness. And then, you know, McGahn and some of these others um, are, are not uh, going to be testifying. Um, and, and, um, and Priebus and others that you might need to make that, that uh, case. Um, and then, um, but, you know, so to me, that's just, that's a, a separate issue. Whereas for bribery, the question is, what do you call it? And I got the sense, uh, Ash, I was actually surprised to see bribery not in there because it seemed to me that at some point, the Dems must have done some sort of focus group or poll because it seemed like all these de- Democrats are suddenly talking about bribery one day. Like they all just like woke up one morning and Nancy Pelosi and, and Schiff and everybody started saying the word bribery. And then it didn't end up in the articles of impeachment. Um, and I had thought what happened is they focus grouped and came up with, you know, voters like bribery, which I could get it because at least everyone understands what it is. Um, I didn't think it was the right thing to do because I think legally I'm concerned about it for the reasons I said, but I could see why you'd include it, and that's why I was surprised it wasn't included. Yeah, and I mean, you know, one possible benefit of including it would have been that it could distill the bribery as its own thing and the abuse of power as kind of this broader behavior um, of just violating his fiduciary duty, um, but basically folded into one. I, I, I Again, it's like half dozen of, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other kind of thing, I think, yeah. on that one. I mean, I think this, this all this article stuff, to me, is a judgment call. Um, we could debate it, uh, you know, and people have debated it, you know, but, you know, and I think what's nice, frankly, for the purposes of this, that we both, you and I, have different views on it, be, be, and I can, and neither yeah. of us, I think, feel like we're pounding the table about either of our views because I think there's a judgment call to both of them. And I, and I think that's a good thing. Right. And it goes to, it goes to, I mean, 
the fact that this is more of a political proceeding than a legal proceeding um, in the sense of what will have the resonance in terms of making it accessible to your average American. I mean, even if he's never convicted and removed, is it something that they will remember and understand? And so, yeah, sometimes, you know, keep it simple, stupid is the, the KISS strategy can work. Yeah, I will just say, too, before we get to, because we have some great listener questions that I that Patty has, but before we get to those, I do want to say, as you know, I've had a number of people ask me, well, is it the same way when prosecutors are charging cases? And I will say this debate that you and I are having, Asha, is a debate that would happen inside a prosecutorial office in certain types of cases. Sometimes it's obvious. OK, there's a bank that got robbed. Let's charge a guy with bank robbery. But often, particularly in a case like this, you'd have very detailed discussions about what charges to bring. And one case that I'll is very closely a close parallel to this case that I think is instructive is the uh, Rod Blagojevich case because that's a case in which mm-hmm. Blagojevich had the opportunity to appoint a United States senator when President Obama won the presidency, and he was eager to get something in exchange for that, and it never actually occurred. He never sold it to anybody, um, but he wanted to and was interested in doing that, and so it's similar in certain respects. And and one thing that a lot of listeners may not know is that that that, that case actually was tried twice. Rob Blagojevich oh. had a first trial. He was they had a hung jury on all but one count. The only conviction he had was on lying to the FBI because they had it on tape and it was a pretty clear lie. He didn't testify or anything. What ha- the U.S. Attorney's Office before the second trial streamlined the case. They dismissed certain counts. They actually dismissed out some defendants. Uh, Mr. Blagojevich's brother. Uh, was Governor Bogovich's brother was a sympathetic uh, defendant who ended up testifying on his own behalf. They cut him out, and they so they streamlined the case and they, they retooled it and it presented it in a much simpler way the second time. And they got and Bogovich ended up taking the stand and he ended up getting convicted on a whole bunch of counts, almost all but one, I think, if I recall correctly. So uh, you know that you know to me that there's nothing right or wrong about either approach. Um, I always tended to be on the simple side that, and you could probably see that from my comments here. I'd be the guy arguing like, let's charge less stuff, let's tell the simpler story. Um, instead, but there are some prosecutors who would want to throw the book at somebody. The difference, the the different consideration in the criminal context is that there, first of all, if you don't charge things, you you have a potentially statute of limitations issue. You also have a practical issue; you're not going to charge something again. And having more charges puts pressure that you have can plea bargain and so forth. Uh, you know, may put pressure on the person to plead guilty, which obviously doesn't exist here. But on the other hand, the at the punishment phase, everything is considered by the judge, and the impact on the sentence is not. You know, it it doesn't nec- it, What you charge doesn't uh, often doesn't not it, it sometimes does, but often doesn't drive the sentence one way or the other and so you, you could be like well let's not this stuff is really in, really important and it should be considered by the judge at sentencing but let's not charge it and you know the judge will consider it anyway right and i think uh, what you're saying about the the charge can kind of include conduct that's not charged i mean scooter libby is kind of another example of that um mm-hmm. because he was charged with making i believe false statements and i think obstruction. I'm not, I don't recall at the top of my head. Mm-hmm. It was one of those two or both. Yeah. But, you know, and then I know sometimes when when Trump pardoned him, 
I, I accused Libby of leaking, and there were, you know, a bunch of trolls that were like, well, he was never charged with, you know, leaking and convicted of that. And it's like, well, what he lied about was, you know, right. whether he had basically leaked. So, yes, I mean, they basically had the proof that he had done that. And But it seemed that probably, I'm guessing, that the easier charge was the false statements charge to, to bring on that case. Right. And my, my former boss, was, Pat Fitzgerald, was the prosecutor in that case as well. And the, I'm I don't have any inside knowledge. I'm not telling anybody in, any inside knowledge on that. But that seems to me uh, like the consideration as well. You have them on that, and the idea is you you go for what you have and you're very solid on. And I think that's often the right approach. Get a conviction on something, and the person's a convicted felon, and the judge can consider it all, and so on and so forth. Um, I know Patty's got a question, a question we've been asked. I don't even know the answer to, but it's such a big question that I, I think we need to raise it because so many people are interested in it. Patty? Hey, Asha. I, okay. One of the listeners is wondering, because there's concern that once, you know, it gets out of the house, the Senate's just going to let it die or, you know, obviously sit on it, and, and it's not going to go the way many people are hoping, and, and as it should, go, you know, <laughs> you would hope against the president, but can the House vote to impeach and not send it to the Senate, thus denying them the ability to acquit? And I know Ash is probably thinking, oh, my God, what kind of question is that? I will tell you, I've gotten this question a lot lately as well, and I've seen it suggested, Asha. And I will tell you, I don't know the answer to this question. It seems really unusual to me. Yeah. But it, have you have you not also seen a lot of people suggesting this? It seems kind of unusual. Yeah, I feel like I feel like there was some lawyer on Twitter who floated this um, and, and it kind of became a thing. I mean. I would say that that would not be the right thing to do. Um, and I'm I'm a process person, and I, I believe, like, the process actually means something mm-hmm. as opposed to outcomes. And so, you know, I think it would validate the idea that this was a bad faith attempt mm-hmm. to discredit the president, to not send it to the Senate. I mean, this is that is what they are supposed to do. I mean, it's, it's it would be like a prosecutor getting an indictment. And I don't even know if it's possible in a criminal case to get an indictment and then just like never bring it mm-hmm. to trial and simply have the cloud of suspicion on someone to never give that person a chance to clear his name. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to exactly the concerns that Mueller outlined in his report on why he was not coming to a legal conclusion about whether or not Trump obstructed justice, because he said, if I, if I come to this conclusion, it's essentially an accusation. And because I cannot formally indict him under current Department of Justice policy, it would, lead him, it would leave him with a cloud of suspicion without any forum where he has the due process to clear his name. And I'm not going to do that. And I thought that was a very principled reason. I think most people didn't understand it, but I thought it was very fair. And I think that it would then be really bad for essentially the House to do the same thing, even if they were able to do that. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, my initial reaction when I saw this, I saw this all over Twitter and elsewhere, was it sounded like something a a very clever law professor came up with. Um, but (laughs) there's no resemblance to reality. And when I say this to folks, look, I love law professors. We occasionally have them on this program, um, and, uh, on, uh, on our, uh, on the podcast. 
and 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 they they often are very studious about thing in things and know certain areas of law very well. But you know they're not they're not people who are practicing in the real world. They're uh, they're studying things, and I think it it could be an interesting idea. But you know it strikes me like that's not what the Constitution set set up the impeachment power to do. That's more like a censure if you're just going to you know have something out there. Um, that's right. You know, and it seems to me also, as you point out, Hash, I agree with you 100 percent that, you know, if it, basically what you're sending, the message you're sending is we don't think we have the proof or we're not we're not ready to go. I mean, if you have the charges, bring them. I mean, in 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 uh, you certainly could not uh, have an indictment that you could that you have a right to a speedy trial in the Constitution. And if you had you charge a person with one thing. And you find out that you're still developing evidence and more things you can add other charges in the future. But, you know, you you know, if you're bringing making the public charge and saying this person is charged and you're releasing it, you're on a clock. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're upholding fundamental principles of our government and our Constitution and due process is one of those. And I'm not a Trump fan. I think most of your listeners who have heard me before follow me on Twitter know that. But Look, he's still, you know, a, a U.S. citizen. He's entitled to um, presenting a defense if if he's accused of something. And I I think that it would it would really undermine our legitimacy to to not give him that chance. Yeah, I agree. Um, I I will say, and I just to be clear, I don't think that the due process clause applies to this. I know, you know, at one point. Right, 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 right. He, I'm talking about the principle. Exactly. This is, I'm just making this clear because Trump's White House counsel, Mr. Cipollone, is, uh, or, or whether it's he's doing it himself or Trump's ghostwriting it, I don't know, but made this argument about due process. This is just our view of what's fair, I would say. Um, you know, I, I would also say, you know, let's do, while we're talking about a Senate trial, you know, there have been a lot of reports, Asha, about what that trial is going to look like. We've heard one report um, that Trump is uh, wanting to call people like, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff uh, as witnesses, uh, which I thought was kind of bizarre. Um, and uh, I, we also I've there was a recent report that there's that the Senate Republicans are thinking about not having any witnesses at all on either side and just immediately proceeding to a vote. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on those things. Well, I think, you know, the, the idea of calling members of Congress as witnesses is, is absurd. Um, and it would be basically the flip side of, of the House not sending the, uh, you know, artic- the, not sending the articles to the Senate to be tried. It's, it's a bad faith kind of thing. Um, I mean, it, I, I'm assuming in the criminal context, it would be like trying to call the prosecutor as right. As a witness, and then saying this person's biased against me. I mean, if you, you know, as a matter of law, you if you believe that there's something, you know, improper, I suppose you can have some legal hearing. I I don't really know, but I I think you don't want this to become some farce of a procedure. And I think that in that sense, if if the Senate really wanted to have a vote, which essentially I think would amount to, I mean, it wouldn't be quite the motion to dismiss because they're essentially jurors, but um, to acquit him immediately, I think they could do that. Um, It would still be a little bit of a bad faith effort, but I think it would be more legitimate than trying to call like members of Congress as witnesses. I I agree. So, 
I, I, you know, as to the the whole idea of calling uh, the calling Adam Schiff or Nancy Pelosi that sort of thing, you know, to me that's just like a pure distraction uh, ploy. As you like, you point out, it's like calling the prosecutor and saying we're going to put the process on trial. I mean, what does Nancy Pelosi have to say about what Trump was doing in Ukraine? I mean, it's not like she was uh, right. uh, You know, it doesn't relate to the substance of the allegations, right? Right. She wasn't like sitting over his shoulder whispering into his ear. Uh, during a call with the Ukrainian president, I mean, you know, so um, that's 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 bizarre. And then, you know, you also, you know, and calling Hunter Biden's the same thing. I mean, yeah, Hunt, the, the name Hunter Biden's coming up here because Trump wants an announcement about him. But it's not like he had anything to do with what Trump was doing either. I mean, regardless of what Hunter Biden was doing or what Trump's beliefs about that were, you know, the, the what Trump did and what Trump thought or is what matters, not what Hunter Biden thought or what Hunter Biden was doing. Um so I think all of that's sort of a bizarre sideshow, although I wouldn't be surprised if, if Senate Republicans call these people. Um, but separately, um, I, you know, as to the other issue, yeah, I think, you know, you, uh, you, I could see Senate Republicans arguing that this is like a motion for summary judgment. You know, we've already heard. Enough, right. Summary judgment would be. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, we already heard the motion. We already heard the evidence in the House. We were watching it on our TV sets. And let's just see where we're at now. And if we're, where we're at now, let's just get back to work and do other stuff. And like you said, I think it's in bad faith. I think that, you know, it's essentially saying we don't want the American people to, um, you know, have to, uh, you know, hear more about this uh, bad act by the president. But, I, you know, that's really what's going on. They want to limit the sort of the public's knowledge of this. But I will say that, you know what one of the Republican or an unnamed Republican senator was quoted as saying, I think if you have the votes, I don't know why you wouldn't just take the take it now. And I think as a strategic point, I can see why Republicans might do it, thinking that if they spend more time looking at the evidence, maybe they'll lose some votes. So better to do it while senators are distracted or not paying attention or whatever. And then, and by the way, let me just add here, I'm not an impeachment law expert, so um, and I, I understand. I mean, they they have a lot of latitude to do what they want to do. So I think, um, I mean, the chief justice presides and I I suppose makes rulings on questions of law. But I, it, the the Senate has a lot of power in how they want to proceed in this. Right. I and I like you. I'm not an expert in this subject. I would just say that. Um, uh, my understanding is the majority of the Senate controls a lot of these questions, and so they they do drive the bus. And certainly, the Constitution itself says very little, uh, if really almost nothing, about the process um, in in the uh, in either House of Congress. Um, I think at this point, I'm going to switch gears. We have more uh, more questions from listeners, but I want to switch gears and talk about the OIG report because I think. To me, this is something, you know, we've just heard, Asha, the last, you know, um, day or so, some testimony from the uh, OIG um, about this report. We've certainly, we both have seen a lot of conversation. I mean, I think both sides have picked sound bites from the report that they like. And when I say both sides, I, you know, I know people hate equating them, but I do think this is very much something, in my view, in which both the left and the right have taken pieces of this report that they like and are amplifying those. Um, but I think the actual story of the report is complicated. 
So I think this is something where we could really, there could, could be some real benefit from you and I talking about this. And I know you have some real experience as somebody who was a counterintelligence agent, Asha, dealing with this. And so I'm interested in, you know, your, your reactions as somebody who was an FBI agent to what you saw in this report. Yeah, and I think it's helpful to kind of give a little bit of the lay of the land so people understand mm-hmm. um, how how this all works. So, and I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of rewind and do a little bit of history. So, you know, in the 1970s, uh, we had something called the church hearings, and the church hearings exposed a lot of abuses by the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover. This was after he died, <laughs> of course. Um, but, you know, the, the FBI was essentially operating not under any established rules. Um, and so, you know, you had accusations that they were spying on Martin Luther King and political activists and, um, you know, Vietnam War pro- protesters, all of that. So, after this, there were a few reforms, and two main ones that apply to today. One is the Attorney General guidelines. Um, after the church hearings, uh, in lieu of creating kind of a legislative solution to how the FBI should conduct investigations, the then Attorney General, um, his last name is Levi, I don't remember the first name, um, issued attorney guidelines from within the Department of Justice on how investigations should be conducted. And those have been updated over time, and I'll get to that. The other thing that came out of the church hearings was FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And that was passed in 1978, and it basically established a procedure by which the government can engage in electronic surveillance for the purpose of conducting foreign intelligence. And this is different than conducting electronic surveillance for the purpose of, you know, gathering evidence of a crime, which is something, you know, you know more about, Bernardo. Like if you're, you know, trying to record a a mob person. Um, And the idea of FISA was to balance the executive branch's national security interests with civil liberties and basically create an analog procedure to the criminal side, which is called Title III, um, uh, to, you know, create rules and, most importantly, a judicial check uh, before the government can commence um, electronic surveillance. And I'll, I'll come back to that when we get to Carter Page and stuff. So the Attorney General guidelines govern things like how investigations can be opened, um, what kind of techniques you can use in investigation. And for purposes of the IG report, the current AG guidelines, uh, I believe, were updated last under Mike McKay in 2008. And they establish um, three different kinds of investigations. Um, one is an assessment, which is, is, is really not a formal investigation. That's when you get, you, you kind of think there's a threat and you can do some very basic things like open search, you know, uh, investigation and maybe interview some people to figure out whether this is a, a real threat. You know, so if you call the FBI to say, hey, I saw, you know, five people photographing the federal building, um, you know, th- that might go into an assessment. The second is what's called a preliminary investigation. And a preliminary investigation is based on 
um, an information or an allegation that either a violation of federal law or a threat to national security has occurred. And in a preliminary investigation, um, you can open a case, a formal case. It can go on up to six months, and you can use techniques, you can use a certain number of techniques, but you can't use the most intrusive techniques. And, and specifically, you cannot use electronic surveillance um, for that. The, the third category is a full investigation. A full investigation requires a, an articulable factual basis that a violation of federal law or a threat to national security exists. So it's a, a slightly higher threshold. It's still you know, overall, I think, pretty low, but you have to have something kind of based in fact. And that is indefinite, and you can use all the techniques at your disposal to investigate that. <clears throat> and so an investigation um, can be open at any of these three levels, and they can always be upgraded to the next level if you, ha if you gather something within the parameters that you have to justify it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the lay of the land. I'm just laying that out there so that when we refer to these things, um, people kind of have a sense of what it all means. People know what you're talking about, at least to an extent. I, I think that's a, I think right. that's wise. Um, I'm curious because you're look, you're doing a better job explaining this than I could. This is something I think that is very dear to your heart. Can you maybe also give us a little bit overview of the report? I mean, I think people have heard some of the headlines. Um, but, you know, at a very yeah. high level, and then we'll, we can talk about our reactions to that. Right. So one of the big questions that has been put out there and put into question by Bill Barr was, was the investigation into uh, links between Russia and the Trump campaign properly predicated? And so the reason I just explained all of, you know, those terms is a predicated investigation is either a preliminary investigation or a full investigation. Did you meet the standard for either of those kinds of cases? And what the, what the inspector general said in the report was that Crossfire Hurricane, which was the code name for the investigation into links between Russia and the Trump campaign, was properly predicated. It was opened as a full investigation from the get-go, and it was based on the intelligence that the FBI received from a, you know, foreign intelligence, a friendly foreign intelligence service, and I, that's Australia in this case, that uh, Russia was making overtures to members of the Trump campaign that they had dirt on Hillary Clinton and would be willing to assist the campaign. And what the IG said was, Although this wasn't documented in the opening, the FBI also knew at this time that Russia was behind the hack of the DNC server, that Russia had been coordinating with WikiLeaks for release of this information. And so based on all of those facts, they opened Crossfire Hurricane to look into whether, the, whether Russia was coordinating with members of the Trump campaign to basically influence the outcome of the election. Mm -hmm. So that's that's number one. Um, number two is about the Carter Page FISA. And the reason that I laid out that kind of opening step is a FISA is an investigative technique. It is something that you use once a case has been opened. It can only be used in a full investigation. 
and it has its own process and threshold, and we'll get into that. The IG said, in addition to opening Crossfire Hurricane, this kind of broader case on Russian co- you know, coordination, the FBI opened four individual cases. And so this is important for listeners to understand is when we talk about the Russia investigation, you know, we say the Russia investigation kind of colloquially, but within the FBI, there were many, many different actual open cases um, as a part of that big inquiry. Um, so they opened cases on Paul Manafort, on George Papadopoulos, on Carter Page, on Michael Flynn, and each of those required their own predicate to open under the basis that I told you. And then under the Carter Page investigation, they would have been able to gather you know, information, and the FISA would have been one thing under that Carter Page thread. And that is where the inspector general found a number of very troubling problems in the process of obtaining the FISA order on Carter Page. Yeah, I, I mean, if if I had to say what concerned me the most um, about reading the report, and this is why I say that, um, in my mind, the sound bites on both sides. You know, I think. Look, the, to me, the most important piece of this was the you know debunking of a lot of conspiracy theories, and we've heard a ton of them. You know, obviously, on the from the president himself, Trump saying, you know, I was spied on by Obama. He was wiretapping you know, Trump Tower or whatever. And then you also heard stuff from like George Papadopoulos and, or, um, you know, saying, oh, I had a FISA on me. And the, you know, this, the guy who approached me was an FBI, you know, a spy and they were setting me up. You know, a lot of that stuff all got debunked, which was useful. Uh, and a lot of, I think, you know, mainstream Americans didn't, um, uh, take any of that seriously anyway, but you know it's good to have uh, a thorough investigation to debunk that stuff. But it seems to me, you know, aside from that, there's this important story, particularly around the Carter Page FISA, where there are some significant problems with those FISA applications, um, and they were they were concerning to me. I mean, I, you know, I, I thought particularly, you know, for example. Um, page, you know, th- there was a lot of errors and omissions uh, from those vices. One in particular that jumped out at me is, you know, f- they they had uh, they were secretly recording um, Mr. Uh, page. Uh, they had somebody, you know, speaking with him, and he said, I've, "I'm not, in, I don't, you know, I don't talk to Paul Manafort at all. We're not in touch. Never talked to the guy. He doesn't get back to me," and yet. They didn't put that in the application, even though he was saying that without knowing that he was being recorded by the FBI. And then they accused him of of conspiring with Manafort in that same application. It would seem to me if you're going to make that allegation, you'd want to say, well, although he has denied it, right, you know, in a consensually recorded, you know, conversation. So, yeah, so two big picture things, and then I want to get to what you uh, just addressed. Sure. So, number one, the, the the reason that I kind of laid out the whole complexity of the thing is that I think there are a lot of people who either ignorantly or intentionally conflate the problems found with the FISA application with the entire investigation. And, you know, that is one kind of 
subpart, like if you were to create a flow chart of the entire thing. So, yes, there were some big problems with the FISA, and I want to talk about those, but that doesn't negate the fact that the overall investigation was a legitimate one. Agreed. Um, in, at least yeah. at the very least, it's it was one thing that – to me, there was two separate things. Like one was the OIG went said there was no evidence that political bias played a role, which I thought is a significant yes, thank you statement. for emphasizing that. Then he's yeah. basically said he couldn't form a conclusion. You know, he was deferring essentially to the FBI's judgment that the investigation was open for appropriate reasons because, you know, he didn't really, you know, that's something he had to be deferential for. The bar was low. You know, he gave a lot of caveats there. It seemed like he was hedging more on that one, to be candid uh, with that, where mm-hmm. it's, it's saying, but he certainly was deferential and said, look, you know, essentially I'm concurring that it was open for legitimate reasons. And but he felt I think he went much further with saying that there was no evidence of political or or other type of bias. That's right. The other thing I just want to make sure to highlight in terms of the conspiracy theories is the fact that initially the investigation was crossed by a hurricane, this kind of more umbrella investigation, and then on these four individuals, it was never a like there was never an investigation on Trump mm-hmm. um, right. himself at that time. And so, you know, I just I think that's important to highlight because he claims that, you know, they were investigating him in some way. So, you know, with the FISA, um, I mentioned before that, you know, this came out of of the church hearings. And so over time, um, these procedures, the statute has stayed the same, but the internal procedures of the FBI has uh, have grown. Um, for a number of reasons, and we can get into those if if you want. But, you know, to get a FISA, and by the way, because you open a full investigation on someone does not mean you automatically can go to the, run to the court and get a FISA. Like, you have to do investigation and gather information, just like you would in a criminal case. You have to open it and then gather information if you want to, like, execute a search warrant or something like that. Um, and so... Uh, what happens is that the case agents who are working on the case, I mean, they're the ones who have, you know, the first-hand information. And they may have a number of different kinds of information, things that they've gathered from their own, you know, interviews or, you know, things that they're observing. Um, they might have informants who are giving them information that they're getting. They may get foreign intelligence. And so you combine all of this, and you have to prepare an affidavit um, that is ultimately, after a whole process, which I'll, men- I'll talk about in one second, um, presented to a FISA court, which is a secret court um, comprised of current federal judges, and they review whether it meets a probable cause standard. And the probable cause standard for a FISA is, for a U.S. person, is whether that person is knowingly engaged in intelligence activities for or on behalf of a foreign power. So basically, they have to say this person is working with a, you know, foreign intelligence service on their intelligence activities, and they and they know it. They're not some unwitting, you know, dupe mm-hmm. who's being, um, you know, roped into this, a rope a dope kind of situation. So where the IG says that this went downhill is really, I think, more procedural um, than. I mean, it is substantive, but it's procedural in the sense that the case agents were in receipt of information that undermined the probable cause that they were presenting 
um, in their affidavit. And there's something in the uh, internal FBI procedures called the Woods procedures. And what the Woods procedures say, and by the way, FISA applications go through so many levels of approval. They go up the chain of command within your office, and they go over to headquarters, and they go up the chain of command at headquarters, and then they go over to Department of Justice, and then a lawyer reviews it. And, you know, there's all this kind of stuff. And the idea is that at the most base level, the case agent has to verify every factual assertion that's made in the affidavit. And you probably know this from your own search warrant because they're, you know, saying that it's true. The reason that you have the Woods procedures is that ultimately the case agent isn't the one that goes into court. And I think that this is where it's a little bit different than, um, you know, the criminal side. It's the Department of Justice lawyer that goes into court and says to the judge, I swear that everything here is true. And so the idea is the case agent has to make sure, has to certify that they have checked everything um, with the department and, and, and certify that to the Department of Justice because the person on the hook is really the, the guy, the lawyer who's going in and swearing, you know, that uh, they're presenting an accurate information. And in this case, the agents did not share relevant information with either the senior officials at the FBI or the lawyers at the Department of Justice that undercut their probable cause. So, for example, um, the FBI included as part of their probable cause that uh, Page had many contacts with intelligence officers from Russia and that he was doing so knowingly. He had actually been investigated a long time ago and warned that he was being targeted, and he was like, whatever. And so, so you know, they knew that he knew what he was doing. Um, the problem is, is that it appears that Page, for some period of time, was working for the CIA. Right. And that they were, you know, I guess, telling him to go talk to these Russian intelligence officers. So it's hard to use that evidence as, you know, nefarious if if it's actually being done at the request of another government agency and with their knowledge. But that these agents didn't share that, and that wasn't included. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, and this goes to the Steele dossier, which has been a big piece. So the Steele dossier was included in the FISA um, application. Um, so it appears that the the Agents had drafted a FISA application with what they already had. And while they were close to having probable cause, the lawyers at DOJ and the higher-ups kept saying, it's, it's still not enough. It doesn't, it's, it's not meeting what we want to take into court. And so when they got the Steele dossier, that took it over the line. And so they added these very specific claims that were made in the Steele dossier, which you know, basically then met the standard. And those specific claims weren't, you know, they weren't, the, the, the FBI couldn't personally state that they knew it was true, and they weren't required to. This happens all the time where sources will tell you information, and you don't necessarily know firsthand that it's true. And therefore, what you're relying on is the reliability and the credibility of the person who's providing that information. And so that was a huge component, that reliability and credibility piece of Christopher Steele was a big part of the FISA application. And over time, the, FBI, the agents got information that may have undermined 
Christopher Steele's credibility or reliability, and they also did not share that with this, the people up, higher up. And what I understood the IG to be saying was not that it necessarily had to be included in the application to the court. It wasn't about what they were presenting to the court, but that the people who were ultimately drafting this application, who are the lawyers at DOJ, didn't, were not aware of all of the facts that would have affected not only what they would have put in the application, but even whether or not they would have presented it to the court. And that's a big problem. Yeah, I think also, you know, the concern there was that they also overstated Steele's, you know, reliability, like what he had done in the past yes. and so forth. That's right. So th- that's a that's a good point. So they not only didn't disclose the um, uh, things that might have undermined it, they overstated. So, for example, I think they said that he had provided reliable information in the past, which is something that you can use to bolster someone's reliability. And that, um, But they said that he had his, the information that he had previously provided had been used in criminal cases, in prosecutions. Right. And that wasn't true. Because I think that, that says a lot about somebody, is like if they provide information and you used it in, in a court of law um, as evidence, then... I mean, you tell me, I guess, that that is a big de- that's a that kind of really attests to what their what they've their past history. Um, mm-hmm. And it turned out that he had not, that what he had provided was actually never used in a actual you know prosecution. I mean, he had provided evidence. Maybe it was true or whatever, but they hadn't actually used it. And so um, it, it wasn't completely accurate. And and that is a big problem in the FBI, because. You know, when you're going into a secret court to surveil someone secretly, and this kind of goes back to the idea of, like, being able to clear your name and all this stuff. In the FISA, you're gathering intelligence. You're not going to charge someone with a crime. You're not going to eventually get into a courtroom and say, ha-ha, this is what we know, and they can prevent, you know, uh, present evidence um, denying it. So in a FISA court, the FBI is really expected to be completely candid. Um, the court is relying on their utmost good faith, accuracy, um, you know, disclosures, all of that stuff in order to make uh, a judgment that protects people's, you know, individual rights. And I think that that is the issue that is, 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 comes up in this um, IG report. Yeah, I would say, you know, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, yeah, like you, you know, like you said, even with the warrants that I was working on, I would do wiretaps in criminal cases, which is not, we didn't use FISA, the la- the layers of review were so extensive. Those things were, were, you know, reviewed so many times, so carefully by so, di- so many different layers of review. Just to do a regular wiretap, there was, so there was, you know, multiple layers of review where I had a deputy chief and a chief uh, in my office reviewing, and then, um, or excuse me, deputy chief in my office reviewing, then it would go over, there'd be an attorney at a special section, um, uh, you know, of the Justice Department that would look at these, and then it would go to a deputy assistant attorney general. They all were reviewing these to make sure they were completely accurate, and, you know, I was trying to make, you know, look, human beings make mistakes. It's not an uncommon thing. If you scrutinize any document written by a human being, there's going to be errors, um, but, um, you know, you try to make them super accurate, and particularly when you have a high-profile case, 
And I, what, what's interesting about this, and I think the OIG sort of makes this point, is you have this hand-picked team working on these very politically sensitive cases. The entire FBI leadership is discussing this stuff, and yet the end result is not really, you know, very, you know, up to the standards that you'd expect ordinarily from the FBI, much less in a case that is so uh, sensitive. Right. And, you know, the um, FBI relies on their ability to be, um, you know, credible in front of a court of law to, you know, because they're, they're doing a lot of these. I mean, I, I know we like to think that this is like the only five of us, you know, the FBI has ever brought, but I mean, they're doing many of these for terrorism cases, for other kinds of cases. And so... I, I think this is a big blow, um, and I think Christopher Bray acknowledged that and said that he is instituting more reforms because the wood procedures are just not enough, um, apparently. And I, I'll add here that one of the things that the IG found was that this was not um, – that he did not believe that this – or he did not have evidence that this was intentional by the agents, that it wasn't politically motivated or because of bias. And in some ways, Bernardo, I feel like that kind of makes it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, because if your procedures are sound and you have someone who is just determined as a matter to circumvent them and is really trying to get around it and nefariously withholding stuff, then you you can blame that person, not the process. But if if you don't find that kind of motivation, then the system is broken because it should not have happened. Um, there should have been some kind of uh, buffer at some level that, that caught it. And I think that's what the IG says is like, it's impossible to understand how a FISA application of this nature of, of kind of this political sensitivity um, could not have captured all of these mistakes. And it wasn't, I mean, I mentioned a couple, but I mean, I think he ultimately found like 17, um, if you include all the renewals and stuff. So Asha, it sounds like reforms would have addressed the concerns that you have. Why have there been no reforms? I mean, I think, you know, you need, so sometimes it, it takes kind of a failure. I mean, these are bureaucracies, Patty. And so, you know, they're not run like businesses, right? Like, they're not, I mean, you know, there, there is oversight. There are all these reporting mechanisms, there's all these internal checks, but, like, sometimes it takes a failure to then dis- to figure out what you need to do to correct it. So, you know, in a non-FISA context, um, when Robert Hansen was caught spying for Russia, um, that's when the FBI instituted polygraphs every five years for FBI agents. They hadn't been doing that before. I mean, you could have been in there for 10 years and like they would have never, you know, rechecked whether to see whether, you know, um, you might have switched your loyalties or something. Um, Similarly, the Woods procedures um, actually came about because, uh, you know, this was related to the failures of 9-11. I mean, they were implemented before, but, you know, the the FBI had not disclosed information to a court, so they, they didn't have this credibility, and they were really afraid of going in um, without anything less than the, the strongest kinds of evidence. And so 
um, as a result, they decided not to pursue a FISA against Zacharias Massawi, the mm. 19th hijacker. Um, and so, you know, then the USA Patriot Act kind of tried to correct that in the opposite direction of, of actually kind of making it a little bit easier for the FBI to, to do these things. And, I mean, it's a, it's a very complicated kind of legal issue there. But so sometimes you, you need these, like, kind of big things that force people to really reevaluate the process under current circumstances. Um, and I think, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, former FBI colleagues, made a good point on Twitter that, you know, there are actually so many administrative burdens in the Bureau. I mean, when, when young people come to me and they say, I want to be an FBI agent, I warn them. And I say, look, you know, it's a great job, mm-hmm. but it's not what you see on TV. I mean, 25% of it might be what you see on TV, but 75% of it is a lot of paperwork, actually. Yeah. Um, and so... It, it wouldn't surprise me if we're at a point where 20 years after 9-11, agents don't really understand why they have to do the Woods procedures. Like, why is this important? And, you know, may believe that their own best judgment is, you know, the ultimate um, arbiter as opposed to this is here for a reason. We have to disclose everything good or bad to the lawyers so they can make the determination of what to include in this application. I, I would also say, too— um... You know, FISA is something we usually don't get much of a window into. This is a an a circumstance in which we're getting an on you know a very huge peek behind the curtain into how this all works. It's the the oversight is is not the way that you know it can be sometimes in regular criminal cases, and I think um, that has uh, that has a part to play here as well. Um, and I also, you know, I have to say that in the national security area, I think, you know, it, you know, this is this isn't me speaking from an expertise, but this is just my impression is that, you know, politicians are worried about imposing some sort of burden on law enforcement when there's a potential like terrorism or national security concern. They want to yeah. make it easy. For law enforcement to do this. Well, that and I think that's that's such a great point, Renato. Because you know, as much as we politicize this, Patty, one of the things is when you create a standard or a procedure, you don't get to distinguish like what you know. If the case is about Donald Trump, then you follow this procedure. But if it's a case about you know a Democrat, you follow this. Like they, it's um, what John Rawls would call the veil of ignorance. Like you imagine that this is a procedure that's going to apply for any kind of case that you're going to bring. And so, you know, the risk is you either make it so onerous that then you fail to capture things that you want to capture, or you make it so loose that you allow the potential for sloppiness, if not outright abuse. It's very hard to find that, you know, what economists would call the Pareto optimal point, um, and especially in a reactive organization. And, and I think that that's where we are right now. Yeah, I think one thing that people often don't recognize is, you know, we'll talk about, for example, the criminal justice system in a lot of typical cases um, you know, is, wow, you know, these people are getting railroaded and shepherded to, through the system very quickly. 
And then when it's somebody that they don't like or they want to get things done, they're like, wow, why are they able to escape just, you know, escape justice? Why are all these people yeah. getting away with it? And the answer is, as you point out, it applies in every case. And so you'll have these cases where everyone knows it's BS and that there's nothing to the defense. But nonetheless, there's all these procedures in a criminal case that, in my experience, you have to jump through. Um, and it's and I and it's the same thing for this type of procedure. It would mean that in every case it puts a huge burden and it means that they, you know, the FBI can work on fewer cases and do fewer FISAs and this and that. But obviously, of course, the power that they're wielding is so extensive that you want to make sure that the FBI is doing that in a way that is um, responsible. Yes. Um, you know, I will also say, too, um you know, there's always, you know, always a perception when I was in law enforcement was that, you know, to kind of as a corollary to this was that the amount of funding and resources that went to national security things, related things would never go down. It was always those would, you know, other things would get cut, uh, you know, uh, other areas of, of the of the FBI. But the, but, you know, the 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 resources that are devoted to, you know, national security were sort of less you know they're not one of the untouchable but they were le- they were harder for the FBI to um you know reduce because for obvious reasons if you reduce that budget um then you know if the politician who does that or the bureaucrat who does that then if there's a terrorist attack you know you'll get blamed um and i think right and well i think i i do think it's important to remember that national security includes terrorism and counterintelligence and one of the things that I think happened post 9-11 was all, an almost exclusive focus on terrorism. That was the threat to prevent. So I right. would say on the counterintelligence side, I mean, this was a little bit neglected. And mm. I think that's partly why we missed what Russia was doing. Um, you know, that wasn't the focus. The focus was when is the next, you know, bomb going to happen or hijacking, whatever, not what are the state actors going to be doing to us? And so um, it is important to remember that, you know, I think even in the national security side, there there was a prioritization of certain kinds of threats over others. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um, you know, I have to say with with this, you know, we I started by talking about Asha you know, how this is something where there's been a lot of sound bites and people haven't dug into the weeds on this. You know, do you think that this this um, report is going to generate any substantial changes or is it are the serious lessons to be learned from this ever going to have a real impact? Do you believe in the FBI long term? I think they will internally. I mean, I really believe, Ray, that he is going to implement some major changes in, you know, in terms of vetting, you know, FISA applications, those kinds of things. And I, I think that that is where it needs to happen. They can happen faster. They can happen at a more surgical level in terms of, you know, where they, where the fixes need to occur. Um, I have less faith about, like, congressional fixes because those are slow. They create something that then, ha- you know, it. It's not as easy. You're not as nimble when you're dealing with legislation, and I want. I think the big takeaway for for listeners, in my view, this is my opinion, is the problem isn't with the FISA statute or the standard that a judge uses to evaluate an application. It's about the process 
that takes place up until the point where the Department of Justice goes into court. Mm-hmm. And you want that process to be impeccable. I think the standard is fine. It's worked for us for 40 years. But you do need to make sure that when the Department of Justice goes in and says, this is what we know, and it's completely accurate, and we believe that it meets the standard, that a court can believe that what they see is the truth. Um, well, I think that's right. I, th- I will say the, the, the my number one concern is that judges are getting accurate or reliable information, and when they sign one of these, they um, they know that they can rely on what's being presented to them because that's the way the constitutional system is supposed to work here is that judges, before there's any kind of intrusive search, the judge, a judge is supposed to take a look at that. And hopefully, you know, the reforms, I will say I was very pleased by um, – um, director Ray's, this Christopher Ray, the director of the FBI, by his statement and dealing with us, I thought it was very professional talking about how, you know, this reaffirms that the investigations were open for appropriate reasons, but there's very significant concerns raised by the report and the FBI takes them seriously. You know, it's my hope that the review and the reforms that are being done in conjunction with the OIG are hopefully going to generate some changes over there um, because I don't think anybody wants to see something like this happen again. Yeah, and I mean, you have to have, at the end of the day, the public needs to feel that the process is adequate to protect their own rights, right? And um, that's how we get legitimacy um, in our government institutions, and you need the public to have faith in that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I expect him to, at some point, testify about it and explain what changes. I mean, Mueller did this, too, after 9-11, when there was that intelligence failure. Um, this is kind of a there's a pendulum swing and it, it goes and you learn, um, you know, different circuit. You, you, the, the problem is you can't predict every permutation of right. like, you know, situations and human error, which always exists. Um, so you're always kind of reactive to these things. And I think the question is, are people open and willing to accept that? you know, they, that, that something has gone wrong and are they willing to, to fix it? And I, I think that that was a very heartening response from Christopher Ray. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, from, from my perspective, I see a lot of people, you know, particularly people on the right who were, um, you know, making all sorts of wild accusations now claiming that they were vindicated. And to me, I don't, I don't really view this as vindicating anyone. I know like some of those people are pointing out like, Hey, you relied on the word of the FBI, you know, and they're say so back when, so you're wrong now. Um, you know, we should be able to rely on the FBI and its representations to federal judges. Uh, we should we should trust that they're completely accurate, and if they're not, um, that is a concern. And so my my view is that you know, what I want to do is I want to be able to have whatever reform is needed so that the public confidence in the FBI can be restored because under this administration we've had a lot of attacks on the FBI that are unwarranted. Um, you know, and the, and the public needs to be able to have confidence in law enforcement. They need to be able to do things the right way. Yeah, no, and no one was more disappointed than me. I mean, the process that I went through, and I was at a very, you know, ground level. So, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I wasn't someone who was seeing, like, you know, hundreds of FISAs. I only saw the ones that I did. But I, you know, it was incredibly onerous from my perspective. <laughs> and I, uh, you know... I felt that I needed to comply with that, um, and and I relied on that in in how I assessed. I mean, that was my data point in 
trying to understand what might be going on. I mean, it's ultimately, you know, you're doing analysis and speculation because you don't know. I mean, none of us actually read the application or knew everything about it that way the IG did. Um, I was incredibly disappointed. I think it was, you know, not the FBI's finest hour for sure. Um, but I think, you know, the the mark of a good institution if it, is if it's willing to reevaluate. I think that's true not just of the FBI. It's like the Catholic Church. It's, you know, universities that are dealing with sexual misconduct. It's companies mm-hmm. that have, you know, dealt with fraud. I mean, you know, are they willing to see what has gone wrong, identify where it has gone wrong, and then put in measures to prevent that from happening again? Um, and I, I feel confident on that front that that will happen in the FBI. Well, I will say, um, you know, to sort of to wrap up here for uh, to wrap up, you know, in addition to Ray's statement, there were statements made by Attorney General Barr and by John Durham, the um, U.S. attorney investigating the investigators as well and separate investigation that Barr initiated and appointed him to do. And I will say I was shocked by Durham's statement. He's a federal prosecutor in the midst of an ongoing investigation. uh, It's totally inappropriate for him to be putting out, you know, preliminary, here's my, in the middle of my investigation, here are my thoughts. Uh, here's how I disagree with Borowitz, uh, excuse me, Horowitz, the, uh, the OIG. And, and Barr, of course, sort of, you know, was trying to say, I disagree with the findings of the OIG. I thought that was, you know, kind of very um, transparent partisanship on his part of political, political, uh, a political statement. I'm curious what your take was, uh, Asha. Yeah, well, I mean, Barr, to me, was not surprising. We know that he has, you know, tried to create his own spin. I mean, it's just, it's tragic, you know, how he is leading the Department of Justice. And, you know, one of the pillars of the rule of law is you accept the findings of an independent, you know, neutral party, um, whether or not it aligns aligns with what you want. I mean, that's how we accept jury verdicts. That's how we accept the Supreme Court's decisions. Mm -hmm. And he has really undermined that principle by what he's done. Um, In some ways, I think that Horowitz, or sorry, Durham is um, worse, you know, because he he is, as you said, in the middle of an ongoing investigation. He has now made a statement that he disagrees. So what if he finds additional evidence at this point that contradicts Mm -hmm. his current position? He now has an incentive to justify what he said. This is why you don't comment on an ongoing investigation until you have everything and you're willing to put your conclusions out. And, um, yeah, I I think that that was incredibly irresponsible and destructive and, you know, Mm -hmm. disappointing. And also creates a a perception, Asha, that – He's trying to do this for political purposes. Whether it's true or not, it looks that way, and it's going to color that investigation. You had people publicly saying, well, now we're dismissing the Durham investigation. You know, why? It's a self-inflicted wound. Uh, yeah, totally. Well, and that's right. And so I would just say, you know, in terms of lo- what to look forward to, I do. I think we can expect in the weeks to come um, more from the Durham investigation in in conjunction with impeachment, and that may be a distraction that's used to distract from what's going on in impeachment. Um, and, uh, you know, this is not a good win. You know, it's a, it's a concerning sign. Let's put it that way about what we have to see. No, I agree completely. Thank you so much for this discussion. It was helpful. Thank you, Ash. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. This was great. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 